any conference named Resolved is a conference that I would have asked to speak at because as your conference brochure shows, it's named for the theologian Jonathan Edwards and his famous 70 resolutions. So uh, if you haven't checked up on Edwards, he's a very important figure and it's such an honor to speak at a conference called Resolved. I love it. I love it. I'm excited. Get excited, people. It's 7.45 on a Friday night. <laughs> and here we are, going strong. Yes? yes? I would have you jump up and turn around and these sorts of things, but um, you, you don't need that. You don't need that. You just had the break. Not long ago, the clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson appeared on a British TV show. To most people in the world, Jordan Peterson was a total unknown. But presenter Kathy Newman, an accomplished journalist, was convinced that Peterson was promoting a patriarchal worldview. She asked Peterson numerous questions on the air that aimed at getting him to admit that he did not support gender equity in the workplace. Her vantage point was that essentially any differences in the workplace uh, would show that there was fundamental inequity, which is very much a cultural value today. We attach that view to a system called uh, intersectionality. Intersectionality is essentially the idea, uh, or at least underneath it is the idea, that anywhere you see any difference, you're not just seeing difference, you're seeing inequity, inequality that funds the difference. And so, if there are more men, for example, as CEOs in a workplace, according to Newman uh, and her brand of thought, that is a sure sign necessarily of not only difference, but of inequity. Our society now essentially reads difference as inequality, as something harmful and bad, which needs to be thought about very carefully. Though Peterson had not written explicitly on manhood, he did in his book, 12 Rules for Life, write on differences between the sexes. In his view as a psychologist, in both his book and on the air, men tend to be more aggressive than women. Uh, and so masculine traits, according to Peterson, in this contentious and now very famous interview, lead to higher salaries. Now, Peterson made plain in this Channel 4 interview, you can look it up on YouTube tonight if your interest is piqued, that he did not attach a value judgment to the differences between men and women. So he was a few clicks away from what I'm going to be talking about in the remaining sessions of this uh, conference. He also made clear that he had provided training for women who wanted to advance and work their way up the corporate ladder seemingly a sign that he was not biased against them coming to CEO status, whatever it may be. But Newman, this woman journalist in Britain, seemed to hear these comments on gender difference and judge those concepts wanting. Frustrated at one point, uh, Newman asked Peterson why his right to free speech should trump a trans person's right to be offended. She switched the argument away from gender inequity. She wasn't getting a lot of pay dirt there, and she then switched it to uh, transgenderism. Peterson said this, we have to risk offending a person in the pursuit of truth. An important point to consider. This led to a halt in the interrogation and Peterson went on to become an overnight sensation 
in the ongoing debate of cultural ideas. Since that day, since 12 Rules for Life sold over 3 million copies worldwide, uh, he then uh, became addicted to a certain medication that he was taking for anxiety and stress, checked himself into a Russian clinic apparently. Things did not go well. It appears that he has come back and he is now talking in religious and spiritual terms. One prays for him and hopes that he finds the true gospel. Nonetheless, what was at play in this famous viral interview was that Peterson was one who dared to speak up in public and identify manhood as something objective. That's for our purposes why we're discussing him here tonight. What I mean in simpler terms is this. Today, if you believe in a concept called manhood, you are almost automatically in the cultural crosshairs. Now, if you attach the modifier toxic to it, you're okay. Okay, you just came back in, you came out of the penalty box, the minute and a half is over, and now we can be friends. But if you take away toxic from manhood, you are in the cultural crosshairs. You are in a problematic place. Now, this itself is problematic for many of us because there are just two kinds of human out there. There are men and women. It is going to be a little bit difficult for us to discuss humanity, human flourishing, personal purpose, and so on, without reference to any positive concept of manhood and of womanhood. And yet, here we are. Here is the takeaway from this bewildering situation where Peterson was read as an oppressive, toxic masculinity purveyor simply for speaking to any difference at all between men and women. Many men in this society, in this culture, don't know who they are. They don't know what manhood is. Many men have not had a strong relationship with a strong father. Many men have not had a father in the home. Men who have had a father in the home, even a Christian home, haven't necessarily had a father who defined these things and spelled them out. And further, even a father who did that is at best imperfect and not Christ. And so there is much for everyone to learn, especially in a society that has problematized manhood from the start. You just want to go up to young boys when you see them and you just want to pat them on the head and say, good luck, buddy. This is going to be a tough run for you. you. You have some serious cultural headwind in front of you just for being a boy. How did we get here? We're going to think now about just a quick tracing of how we got to this not good situation, because it's not good. And then we're going to uh, think a little bit more about men's specific struggles quickly. And then I'm going to get into the good stuff, which is to say several biblical passages that we'll go to quickly to understand how we can put men back together, how we can help men in a distinctly biblical and salvific way today. That's our goal. How did we get here? How are men struggling? How do we help men? We want to help men. We should want to help men. 
everyone in here in some form should want to help boys and help men. That should not be a certain ideological persuasion for just a few of us. We should all want to help men, and we should all want to help women. We should all want to help boys, and we should all want to help girls. That's a burden of this event, of this church, I'm quite certain, of my church back in Kansas City, and of any church that is worth its salt in the name of Jesus Christ. How do we get here? To understand our current confusion over manhood, we need to talk for a minute about our confusion over womanhood. And we need, therefore, to talk about no less than four waves of feminism. Let's define them. First wave feminism of about 100 years ago in the West focused mainly on suffrage and overturning legal obstacles to gender equality. So for example, voting rights and property rights. There's a lively discussion to be had about all of those matters and all of those aims. Nonetheless, there, there was a pretty broad project that a good number of folks from a good number of backgrounds, Christian and otherwise, would support along some of those lines. That's first wave feminism of about 100 years ago, roughly. Second wave feminism after World War II broadens the debate to include a wider range of issues, sexuality, family, the workplace, reproductive rights, inequalities, the legal system, and so on and so forth. This takes root especially in the 60s and the 70s. It is the feminism that is probably most famously associated with the term feminism. It, re it refers usually to a kind of strong, emboldened, empowered womanhood uh, that would be against the idea, for example, uh, in common parlance, that a woman should be chained to the kitchen barefoot and pregnant all the time, or that a woman's only value is in doing dishes or these sorts of things. That's second wave feminism of roughly 50 years ago. Third wave feminism uh, begins in the 1990s. It's associated in some cases with grunge culture, uh, the Pacific Northwest. Third wave feminism broadens the goals of the feminist movement and focuses on abolishing gender stereotypes, gender roles, and expanding the feminist project to include diverse racial and cultural identities. It's at this point, then, that feminism begins to undermine itself as a project. Now, in reality, there's a lot to say about the effects of feminism on American society and the American family and the church. Many of its effects have been baleful, frankly. Nonetheless, it is at this point that even many feminists of today and traditional feminists of the past, not necessarily of any kind of Christian uh, uh, confession, would say feminism takes a fascinating turn, just in a sociological sense, because fourth wave feminism builds off of the third wave the fourth wave of the last decade or so basically does away with the very concept of a fixed definition of womanhood. So the movement that starts, think about this, in asserting the unique rights and roles and abilities of women, that's what it claims anyway, is a movement that ends or ends now in our time with the fourth wave that views womanhood as not something very defined at all. The fourth wave effectively undermines the previous waves, which is where we find ourselves today. 
This is part of why when you hear talk about the LGBTQIA plus whatever else movement, you're, you're not dealing with one movement. I'm sure many of you know this. You're actually dealing with numerous movements, but not only that, you're dealing with numerous movements that are actually opposed to one another. Because there still are a good number of second wave or maybe third wave feminists who would support the LGBT movement who are absolutely opposed, for example, to the new fourth wave phase with its claim that there is no such thing as womanhood. We are in a truly strange era where conservative evangelicals find themselves agreeing with the leading lights of second wave feminism. Gloria Steinem, Camille Paglia, and others are regularly cited now, at least for, for a time, positively by people who they used to battle with. Why? Because second wave feminism believes in womanhood. It believes that women, in its own construction of course, need to be lifted up and protected and celebrated in all these sorts of ways. Fourth wave feminism doesn't believe in anything called womanhood. Anything defined, clear, many purveyors anyway. And so, the, just, just mark this, the LGBT movement, so on and so forth, is a movement that is fundamentally not of one voice, not just you know, different voices, but opposed voices, which is a truly fascinating thing to consider. Nonetheless, the different groups involved in it have made very successful common cause at transforming America, and will, unless something unique happens or God intervenes, will continue to transform America. What does this mean then? Where are we now? Today, sex is not used as a term at all, speaking to a, a single person. Gender is the term. Gender means something that can morph. So whenever you can, though it can get a little awkward at places, you should speak of sex. You know, what is your sex, man or woman, male or female? Nonetheless, many people use the term gender. And gender itself is not fixed. Gender is a construct. There's that word again. Gender isn't something fixed and made and defined. Gender is a construct. Much of what uh, Christians, for example, believe about men and women has been constructed by society. It's not based in actual reality. It's not truth. It's not certainly from God himself. No, no, no. This is a construct. Advertisers, companies, patriarchal churches like this one, this is how this would be seen, I mean, these kind of settings have foisted and fomented these stereotypes, these rigid stereotypes upon perfectly normal people who now suffer under the weight of constructs. And when you fit that with the expressive individualism we talked about that's therapeutically oriented in the last session, what do you have? You have the view that you and I should not accept these different gender stereotypes. Of course not. We should absolutely push against them in order that we discover who we truly are. No one can define us. According to modern gender theory, we all possess a sexual orientation which can morph, which is neutral. And that refers at base to your enduring patterns of attractions. We're just putting some things down here so we make sure we understand where we are now 
in order that we can take the Bible and bring it into this conversation in a very strong and gracious way. So everyone has a sexual orientation. Again, your sexual orientation is not a, a moral reality according to secular dogma. You might have a pedophilic orientation. You might have a bestial orientation. There are actual conference presentations, for example, at a TED conference overseas where it was argued that pedophilia is a neutral sexual orientation. It is not something that needs to be changed. It's just who the person is. That is the fruit of this kind of expressive individualism that we are talking about. That is, that is what your neighbors, that is what your coworkers, that is what your teachers, that is what your friends, your roommates, your people who work in the local grocery store. I mean, this is where things are, and this is where things are are going. These kind of ideologies are taking root all around us in this society. We also have a gender identity. This is your understanding of who you are, okay? Your gender identity is sometimes identified with uh, your brain sex, okay? Another term you should take down if you're trying to make sense of these things. Your brain sex is your perception, it's, very, it's basically your gender identity, they're basically synonymous. It's your perception of who you are. And that is different from your biological sex, the shape of your body, what, what God has given you, I would say, in terms of your anatomy. Your anatomy is different from your brain perception of who you are, which tells us something very important for you to understand about modern gender thinking. There is this absolute severing of the body from true identity. Now, they can come back together if you want them to come back together. But if you don't want them to come back together, you don't have to have them together. If you have the body of a woman, but you believe that your brain sex or your gender identity is that of a man, that's you. You have a certain anatomy, but, but your true self is different from your anatomy. Then we refer to your gender expression. This is the way you present your gender identity. So... Today, increasingly, if you go to the local Y or something like this, you will see boys who look like girls and girls who look like boys. It's now essentially fashionable for boys to look like girls and vice versa. This is because many people believe what, what I'm sketching out here, that yes, they have a certain body type, but their brain sex, their gender identity differs from that. And they don't believe that God gave them the body they have to glorify him as a man or a woman accordingly. They believe that they are becoming their true self. They're becoming authentic to who they are when they are, for example, gender fluid, which means that you're not really much of anything. You're kind of whatever you want to be right now, which may actually apply in different cases to our spouse. We may say, you are very fluid today. Who are you today? I don't mean gender fluidity. I just mean it is interesting, nonetheless, to live with a human being, isn't it, in covenantal marriage? There is a certain fluidity to humanity. Who are you today? Okay, no, just kidding. I'm pushing the bounds here. Not fluid in that sense, we pray. Your anatomy, as I say, is merely your core physicality, uh, speaking in polite company that you have per your birth sex. If you are transgender, last term, your gender identity 
or your brain sex differs from your birth sex, and that is weirdly, ironically, a fixed identity for you. So a non-fixed identity becomes a fixed identity in the same way that non-binary gender creates a new binary, non-binary and binary. That was for free as well. <laughs> gender identity is now not seen as one of an either or, male or female, man or woman. It's seen as part of a spectrum or a continuum. Again, that is a very fluid spectrum. This is where your children and mine are growing up. And again, I continue repeating myself, will grow up. Part of a session like this, we're not, we're not shouting at the culture. We're not throwing rocks at the culture fundamentally. We're trying to understand the times, aren't we? We need to understand the times. And then even more importantly than that, we need to understand the word. And we need to bring the word to bear on the times. But you can't bring the word to bear on the times most effectively until you understand the times. At least you try to. Our children are growing up in an androgynous society. An androgynous society. Andros and gynos in the Greek, combining the two. Combining andros man and gynos woman. That's the kind of society we are raising kids in, your grandkids are being raised in. Choose it. Your future children will be raised in. One that argues, the one that is premised on the view that there is not man or woman, there is some kind of mushy in between for many people, and that is increasingly the norm. And in such a normed context, it will be weird for a church like this or churches like the ones that are represented here, strong biblical churches, to raise boys distinctively as boys and girls distinctively as girls. Expect headwind in doing that. Expect it not just from the culture. Expect it from within the church. That's often the hardest fire to take. The intra-church fire. Not from wackos. That's not the hardest fire to take within the church. From people who you thought were with you. People who you thought got this. People you went to Bible college with. People you were in Campus Crusade with. And they learned what you learned. And you're trying to stand for the truth now. In, in this pagan, this neo-pagan order that we're in. And, and they're not. And it's not just friends. It's fathers and mothers who, who love this biblical truth that we're, we're going to search out. And raised kids to love it. And the kids don't love it. Kids reject it. And there are terrible rifts in families, in Christian families, where the father and mother, they weren't perfect by a long shot, but they tried to raise their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, praying for the gospel to take root by the Spirit's power, and instead there is conflict. There is, there is conflict now. There always has been since the fall. But especially when a society moves like this one is moving at the speed of light to embrace neo-paganism, unbiblical thought on these matters like the kind we're sketching out, there is going to be more conflict. There is going to be more division. There is going to be more pain. You are going to get weirder and weirder for trying to raise boys to be boys and raise girls to be girls. And it's not going to come most of the time, interestingly, from local secularists. A lot of the opposition you face for raising your children in a distinctly 
biblical way is going to come from within the church, from professing Christians, from those who say they hold the same doctrine you hold. And that will be the bitterest challenge you face, I predict, for at least a good number of us. Isn't it fascinating to you? Just quick comment. Isn't it fascinating? This isn't some genius insight that Jesus' strongest opposition he faces, though he is crucified by the power of Rome. Yes? I mean, clearly. Rome is like, sure, crucify him. That's fine. Ultimately. Another one, another one up. Put him on the cross. That's fine. The reason he gets there is because of betrayal after betrayal by who? People close to him. People within the religious world. People who claim to have his faith. A member of his inner, inner circle. What is the Bible teaching you? What is the New Testament teaching you? It's teaching you that the toughest fire is going to come probably in at least a good number of cases, not every case, a good number of cases though, from within. Where are false teachers? Are false teachers way out there? Man, the wolves, the wolves are 10 miles away. We hear them at night. No, the wolves are in the camp. False teaching is in the camp, right? In Paul's epistles and Paul's letters to Timothy, they're in... They're here. They're inside the house, to use the famous horror movie trope. Okay, don't go watch horror movies. Sorry. But they're in the house. They're, they're here. They're here now. That's, that's often the toughest opposition you'll face from people who say they hold what you hold. They just don't want to be out there and weird and wacko and fundamentalist like, like you. We need to buckle up. We all need to buckle up. If we're going to make disciples, this is going to be tough work. This isn't going to be neat and clean, easy discipleship. One, one just rolls off the line as another. It's going to be hard to make converts in years ahead. It's going to be hard to make disciples. There's going to be pressure from outside the church, and there's going to be pressure inside the church from professing Christians. So we've got to buckle up. Here's what one writer said in the Atlantic of her little boy beginning school not a Christian voice. This fall, our son will start kindergarten, and with kindergarten comes a school uniform. You can almost hear the dread in her pen. This means pale blue collared shirts for all the kids, paired with navy blue pants, jumpers, or skirts. Currently, there don't seem to be any boys at the school who choose the jumper or skirt, and it remains to be seen whether our son will maintain his penchant for dresses. This boy is wearing dresses even when the sartorial binary becomes starker and the dress is more plain. Here's the last part I'll quote. Whatever he decides is fine with us. My only hope is that if he chooses to stop wearing dresses, it won't be due to feeling that his fullest self-expression no longer has a place. What I want for him and for all boys is for the process of becoming men to be expansive, big and grand and undefined, not reductive. That's our view. I know I'm not alone. This commentary coming from an Atlantic article entitled, Today's Masculinity is Stifling. What does this mean? Why quote this? Because this is where the leading edge of American culture is. The leading edge of American culture wants the sexes blurred. It wants an androgynous context. It wants boys to look basically the same as girls and vice versa and to be raised basically the same as girls and vice versa. Increasingly today, children 
are not only encouraged to look like the opposite sex, they are encouraged to choose their identity and choose their gender pronoun from a very young age. Okay, how are men doing in such a society? What, what is all this doing to manhood? Does this interest you? These are things that keep me up at night. Perhaps I'm just weird. I know I'm weird, but perhaps I'm especially weird. All this means that it is tough to be an unapologetic man today. Now, I'm in Texas, so things are probably better here, to be frank, as they are in Missouri. Nonetheless, manhood is regularly attacked today, usually, as I mentioned earlier, by identifying a crime or a misdeed, sometimes real ones, and, and labeling that toxic masculinity, as if because one man commits a crime, all men necessarily commit that crime. Toxic masculinity is also associated with the patriarchy. The patriarchy is a rarely defined force that is collectively holding back women. Men in such a context are encouraged, demanded even, to step back. Women are encouraged to lean in. Think about the language. Women lean in. Well, nobody really says what men are supposed to do. What's your boy supposed to do in a lean-in context? What's he supposed to do? He's effectively supposed to, I guess, step back. Men, if they speak into this situation, are, here's another term, mansplaining. That's a one you hear. If you call attention to problems regarding men, you often will receive a mocking response. Uh, on my social media, I try to raise these kind of issues on Twitter or something. Friends, if I talk about something like suicide rates of men, something that should be completely nonpartisan, I will get flame roasted for it, as if I am therefore denying problems of women, um, as if I'm erasing centuries of patriarchal oppression on the part of men. It boggles the mind. Just to, do you understand what I'm saying? Just to call attention to real problems that men are facing is itself patriarchal. This is a, this is a got you by every angle situation. Do you realize this? It's similar to the racist dynamic that we were talking about in the previous section. If you don't accept that racism is everywhere and all pervasive, you don't see the problem. Uh, if you start to ask where it is, you're denying the problem. Um, if you deny that you're a racist, you're part of the pro This is a non-falsifiable situation, in other words. You're guilty at every turn. In the same way, you're guilty at every turn as a man today. There's no way out of this culturally, the way the game has been set up, the way the board is to be played. That may be fine if you're playing a zero-sum game and you want only women to flourish. That may be totally fine. But that is not where the church is. The church does not want only its precious little girls to, to grow up and be healthy and ultimately know the Lord, right? The, the church wants girls to grow up and thrive and boys to grow up and thrive. And the church recognizes that boys and girls are not the same, that God has made them differently for his glory. More on that in just a minute. All this means that many men are not flourishing in our time. Again, people don't care about that. People don't care in many cases, but we should care. In 2000, just 35% of lower skilled, that's a technical term that I didn't invent, lower skilled young men lived with family. Now, well over 50% of lower skilled younger men live with their parents. So that has gone up 
in just a few decades. Men are below 40% of churchgoers today. Now, men are usually below, statistically, in societies, but they're especially low now. They are not into church. Whatever church is, they're not into it, statistically anyway. But consider this. If father is a regular in church attendance, okay? This isn't Christianity, gospel-centered. This is just general church attendance, okay? If the father is a regular in attendance, he rarely goes, and the mother regularly goes, 3% of kids become a regular church attender in later life. Three. If the mother is regular in church attendance and the father is regular in church attendance, 33% of kids become regular churchgoers. The role of a father in shaping the culture of the home and the direction of his children, we're not even talking about Christianity here, we're just talking about general sociological patterns, is spectacular. You can hate that, you can deny that, you can fight it to the end of your days. Men have a special effect on their kids for good and for ill. If men are not virtuous, their kids don't want to be virtuous. If men at least try in some sense to be virtuous, there is a pretty decent shot that their kids will also try. And then we can sync this all with a biblical worldview, a gospel-driven worldview as well. Men commit today... 95% of violent crime. Suicide rates among men at all levels of society, but especially uh, those who are not earning high incomes, are through the roof, historically. The point is, is this. Men are struggling today. Men are struggling greatly, and very few people are coming for them. Very few people want to help them. We desperately need a doctrine of biblical manhood. We're just going to barely, like, scribble on the chalkboard here tonight in terms of what we need to say and get out there and communicate. And this, furthermore, isn't just a teaching exercise. You can't just dump content out there and expect that men will go get it and everything will magically heal itself. The Christian faith is a discipleship faith. It's a faith where, yes, the, the truth is paramount. It's communicated from the pulpit, but then it has to be enfleshed, doesn't it? It, it? it has to be brought into life. That's how God has intended it. Let's look at Genesis 2 um, with, with the limited time we have and just lay out just three things we need to say about men. I want to just reap from page 2 of Scripture. We were in page 1. Here I want to reap from page 2, effectively. Genesis 2, verse 5, and then I'll jump in just a few verses. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 2 verse 8, and the Lord God formed or, or planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now let's move ahead to verse 18 in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to note with you just three basic truths we see here about the meaning of manhood. What is manhood? (laughs) No one has a definition for it today. We do. And it's from Scripture. And it's from the very design of God. First, the man is called to protect. The woman is from his own body. The man is called to protect. We saw this earlier in the chapter. I didn't read these verses, but in verse 15 of Genesis 2, the man is called to work and keep the garden. Uh, You can translate that second verb, keep, protect, or guard. He has a priestly function in Eden. He is the one who guards this garden temple of God. The man is the one, in other words, who is supposed to watch the perimeter of Eden. He's supposed to have an eye out. He's supposed to be on alert. And he's supposed to be looking for any threats or foes that would enter the garden and assail his wife. And then we get a second sign that he is a protector. When the woman is made from his rib, she is made from his own body. So the man is fundamentally, in these different forms, explicit and inexplicit, I think, called to see himself as the one who who protects the life of his wife. The woman is from his own body. The man is the one who keeps the garden. This this teaching, this principle will be taken up in the person of Jesus Christ, who in Ephesians 5, 22-33, is identified as the one who laid down his life for his bride, the church. Jesus died on the cross to purchase his bride for himself. We think of that in terms of salvation, and that's correct, gloriously correct. But Jesus is carrying out, at the same time, protection. Salvation is, in one sense, protection. He is protecting his bride. He is, in other words, not letting Satan have her. Now, Adam, the first Adam, fails in his charge and call to protect his wife. Because if you know Genesis 3, 1 through 13, you know that the serpent does enter the garden and Adam does not crush the serpent's head, Satan taking the form of the serpent, but instead stands passively to the side as the serpent engages his wife, has this lengthy conversation in which the serpent twists the word of God, mangles the commands of God, and slowly gets Eve to doubt what God has conveyed to Adam. Adam is already actually taught communicated the truth of God to Eve. 
He's already done that. Eve knows the truth that was communicated to Adam, and yet, in Genesis 2, and yet Adam says nothing as the serpent both attacks his wife repeatedly and draws her away from the Lord. Adam fails just as soon as he's called to be a protector, to protect. But this does not erase the fact that the man is called from creation to protect his home. Men are called to be protectors of women, not predators upon women. Our society encourages men to be lustful predators of women. And the scripture teaches the opposite. The scripture tells us who men are called to be in part and what men are called to do. Scripture calls the man to bless his wife and love his wife and be strong for his wife. Men, on average, have a thousand percent more testosterone than women. That's not in the Bible, but it's an observable fact of science. The Mayo Clinic has done a study on it, for example, that I cite in the Grand Design if you want some stats. Everybody wants the stats, so you got the stats there. Okay, the man, a thousand percent more testosterone. So... Ladies and gentlemen, when I come home from a hard day of work, why do, why do the Strand girls, Ella and Ainsley, ages 12 and 6, come and give me a very soft and squeezable hug? And my son, with ferocity, unasked for in many cases, unexpected, tackle me and then want to go down to the basement and play competitive soccer and football and all these things. Why the differences? Well, there's lots of things to say. One of them that we say is you can read in the biology of boys and girls on average the design of God. You can read it. That testosterone isn't there to be medicated away. That testosterone isn't there to be extracted from that boy as if it's a bad thing. Testosterone has to be shaped and channeled, and there needs to be a dad to do that primarily, yes, but that's not a curse on a boy that he has a thousand percent more testosterone on average than a girl. That is, if handled rightly, a calling from God. That's a stewardship for a boy. What I just said is about as countercultural as you can get today, okay? Because testosterone is the first thing that goes for a gender-neutral society. Testosterone is what makes everybody fight. Testosterone is what makes bad things happen to good people. Testosterone does. It's true. It will drive men to be completely out of their mind crazy. And if they're evil men, they'll take the testosterone and they'll use it for evil ends. But the testosterone isn't the problem. It's the heart that's the problem. So the boy has to be shaped and channeled and trained and discipled, not to lose his God-given manliness and boyhood. It's beautiful to see a boy being a boy, but, but, to, but to use that for God's glory in a God-glorifying direction. No easy thing, by the way, okay? Not a simple little matter. Discipleship isn't supposed to be an afternoon at Starbucks, and we've got it all sorted out. It's actually year upon year, line upon line, day upon day, forgiveness upon forgiveness, teaching upon teaching, principle upon principle, etc., and so on. Yes? But this is how God has ordained it. And testosterone, boyhood, manliness is not bad. It needs to be channeled. And one of the major ways you channel 
God-given manhood of this kind is you go back to texts like this, you show that protection is a call from God, from men. Every time Adam looks at Eve, he's supposed to think, she was made for my rib. How could I ever lift a hand against her? How could I ever let anyone go after her? She's made from my own body. I've got to give my body to protect her, to strengthen her. That's why historically men go to war to protect women and children. Is that because every woman cannot in any way defend herself? No, but it's because of the call of God in a text like this. It's because of the design of God. It's because men are called to be the ones who put themselves on the line. Adam was called to work and keep. Adam was called to work and guard before there was even a fall. That is an ancient call and it echoes today. And we train our boys, we train our young men accordingly. There will be no modern gender neutral edit for us. Second, the man is called to work, to lead in working. What did God do? God brings, brings the, the creatures to the man to name them, verses 19 and 20. He gave them names, verse 20, to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. What's happening here? Adam is, is working. Adam is stewarding creation. Adam is taking dominion of creation. He's bringing order to it. That's really what work does in a very basic sense, but also in a very complex sense. Work brings order to things, and Adam has the role of ordering. It's not that the woman's not going to work in her own way. She absolutely is going to work, but it is that Adam has this charge and this commission. He is formed first. That's not an incidental formation. He has the leadership role in this Christian family pre-fall. He has what the New Testament is going to call headship in Ephesians 5 and other texts. He has been given authority from God in the context of the family to lead his family, to lead his wife, and to lead any children that God would give him. And one of the major ways that he expresses this leadership is in working, is in ordering his reality. You don't only have to go into ministry for your work to count. Every man who works unto the Lord is honoring God is ordering the world. Now, you may say, yeah, I'm ordering it, but the world takes away that order tomorrow. <laughs> so it is in a fallen world. Nonetheless, all that work matters. Men are made to work. Men are not made to be passive and listless and without purpose. Men can hit spells and rough patches where they can't find employment, for example. I'm not, I'm not here to shame them at all. That's a challenge. That's not easy. The lockdown may have done that for you. If it has, I, I grieve that genuinely. But as much as God allows providentially, you're made to work. And our boys have to be trained to work. Our boys have to go to texts like this and see that Adam was called to work the garden. And thus, that a man will only thrive, and especially thrive in a Christian sense, when he is put to work. That's the implication of this teaching. That's the implication of Genesis. My dad sent me into the main blueberry fields at age 12. I look back and I'm like, that was a bold move, man. 
saying, saying this in retrospect to my dad. I was a 12-year-old boy. I didn't know the first, first thing about raking blueberries. You don't even know what I'm talking about because raking, <laughs> raking blueberries, it's a main thing. It's like, it's like, you, it's like okay, this is a very strange moment in the conference, but it's, it's like you have this, okay? This is the handle, to use a technical term. This is the handle, and you've got tines, okay? They're like long spikes, and you've got a base down here. And you bring the rake down to the ground. The, these are low bush berries. There's high bush berries that you pick, and there's low bush berries. Main is low bush berries. You, you put the ground, you put the rake down by the ground. You don't, it doesn't go into the ground. It's, a, it's an art, okay? It's an art. And, and, and you scoop up the berries, and then they're down here, and you dump them into the bucket. They go into the bucket, then they get winnowed. Um, that means all the little leaves, you can tell I'm very good at blueberry raking, then all, all the leaves leave and then they get packaged and then you buy them at Whole Foods. Do you buy them at Whole Foods? No, that's way, whole paycheck is what they call it. Okay, you buy them somewhere. Okay, we rake those, okay? Just so you know. You're welcome, you're welcome, all right? And in Maine, we don't, you know, other, other states have their own things that, that boys do at a young age to get trained to work. That was serious. That was a thing in Maine. Or other, others of my classmates went out on the lobster boat. We give you that too. Uh, or they went out, you know, fishing, these sorts of things. Atlantic salmon, delicious. Um, so so that's, that's the culture of work. That's what we're talking about, though. My dad wasn't a fancy, fancy man. He didn't have fancy ideas about manhood. My dad was a very traditional man. He, he was a forester. He's retired now, he's a forester, and he walked the woods of Maine for a living. He, like, he would see a moose on a good day. That's who he would see. So he was not, not like me. He did, he did not have a lot of words, but he trained, he trained me to work. And I'm so thankful he did. Now, we need to approach this, of course, from a gospel-driven perspective. You're not working just to work. You're not working just to thrive as a man. We're saying to our boy, you're doing this for the Lord's glory, and your, your labor will only honor God when it is done in Christian faith. Yes? Nonetheless, this is part of how you understand manhood. And this is why it's so dangerous for a society to have men step back from the role of provider and not be in that role. Men will struggle. It's, it's a thing. Men so often struggle when they are not doing what God has called them to do. There are different economic situations that families face. There's gray areas. There's seasons of life for women, so on and so forth. We can have all those conversations. Nonetheless, when a man isn't leading and working as Adam was called to do, he won't thrive. We know the blueprint for men to do what God wants them to do, what God has called them to do. Again, in the power of Christ, we want men to embrace that. We want our boys to see work as good, to see providing for a wife and children as a glorious undertaking, whatever the exact vocation, provided it's moral, may be. Third, the man is called the lead. Final point here, heading to the home stretch. I used to do Kansas City Royals analogies. That's gone by the wayside. So I said heading to the home stretch. We had a championship. Now, thank you, thank you, football championship last year. Yeah, can we enjoy this together? Yeah, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, thank you. There is a strong Lubbock to uh, Kansas City connection these days. I got on a flight from a uh, convention a few years ago, Dallas to uh, Kansas City, A1 on the Southwest aircraft. Mahomes, Mahomes. I was like, wow, this is so cool. 
I'm geeking out more than I should as a Christian right now. <laughs> Third, that was for nothing. The, the, the man is called to lead. The man is called to lead. He's called to lead. He leaves his father and mother in verse 24 as we read. He's the one who holds fast. Isn't that interesting? The American domestic arrangement is that the woman sets the temperature of the home. The woman holds everything together. The woman does the heavy lifting. When you go out to dinner, he's on his phone looking at stats from ESPN. She's trying to placate four kids and get them to actually eat nutrients. In the Bible, in the Bible, it's the, look, look at it, verse 24. It's the man that leaves his father and his mother. He takes initiative, doesn't he? He's the one who steps out to win a woman's heart, isn't he? But it's not done. He's the one who holds fast to his wife. That's, it's right there in the text. She doesn't hold fast to him. This isn't saying that anytime there's tough spots in a marriage, sins in a marriage, even leading unto divorce, it's always the man's fault. Don't believe that. I'm not saying that. Women sin, men sin. There's also a belief in our culture that women are basically more virtuous than men. Don't teach that. Don't believe that. Women need the gospel. Men need the gospel equally. Nonetheless, we need to be very clear that it is the man's role to hold fast to his wife. By the grace of God alone, he can't do this in his own strength, right? But by God's grace, he does not want to let her go, does he? He wants to hold fast. He wants to hold her until he can't hold her any longer until death takes her from him. Is this countercultural? Marriages burn up in an afternoon in this society. It's not that there's not problems in marriages. It's not that there's never grounds for divorce. I think there are. Not many grounds for divorce, but it is that, look, two people who have to battle sin, who stumble in many ways, as James 3 says, those people, even redeemed, are going to have to work hard to stay together. And if a culture embraces no-fault divorces, this, this one has, marriages are, I'm sorry, marriage is way too hard. Those marriages are just going to, they're going to blow apart. People are going to fall out of love left and right. Guess what? We all fall out of love. We do. If, if, if marriage is based on emotion, it won't last. Marriage in the Bible isn't based, this, this doesn't say anything about emotion. Marriage in the Bible is based on covenant. It is not based on emotion. He holds fast to his wife. He has a covenant with her and he won't break it. And by God's grace, she has a covenant with him, and she won't leave. This is God's design. And men are called to lead in this. He is called to hold fast. He is called to pursue his wife. He is called to set the temperature in the home. He is called to open the Bible and pray a few times a week with the family, whenever it may be. There's not a prescribed order in the Bible for family worship, but he's the one. You may not have... Training in the Bible, training in theology, may not be a ministry at all. Doesn't matter. He is called to hold fast. By extension, 
bringing this together with Ephesians 5, these two cornerstone texts, he, he is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church and to wash his wife with the water of the word, Paul says in Ephesians 5. There's nothing fancy about that, men. It, it means opening the Bible with your family. It means praying with your family. It means teaching your kids basic truths of Christianity. It means striving to be a godly man to your family. That's, that's what it means. God does not set this bar impossibly high for us. Praise God. He doesn't. This is, this is what we can do. We can do this in the power of Christ. We can do this. But men don't only lead in the home. Wrapping up here, men must lead comprehensively. Men are called to lead in the Bible. You see this all throughout the scripture. It's, it's something that is not so much stated principially with a whole bunch of underlying justification. It's just there. If you're paying attention to the narratives of Israel, if you're paying attention to the apostles trained by Jesus, if you're paying attention to the early church, this is what men did. This is what they did. They led. David and his mighty men in the Old Testament go to war against Israel's enemies. Manly courage routes the Philistines and saves the nation when a tiny little runt like David, who nobody wanted to kill Goliath, kills Goliath. Over and over again, godly men in terrible times, desperate circumstances, lead when no one else wants to lead, when everyone else wants to play it safe, when everybody else doesn't want to risk it. Godly men step up. It's no different now. It's a time for men to lead. Not in any way that is against women. That's not what we're saying. It's for women. It's for men to use their strength. For men to use their God-given courage, assertiveness, skill, whatever it may be. And step up to lead. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Manhood is courage. Biblical manhood means being courageous. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Act like men is synonymous with be courageous. But you must not change it from act like men to be courageous or else you will lose the connection between manhood and courage. And you can't lose that. The simpler way of saying that then is that men are called, again, to lead. What are we training our boys to do then practically? We're training our boys to take initiative. We're training our boys to lead every chance we get. Whether they're a boy who's going to have a lot of words to say or not, we're training them at every level we can to step up. When I leave the house on a trip, I'll often bring my nine-year-old son over and I'll say, you're the man of the house. You protect. You protect the girls. He's got his mother and two sisters. You protect them. When groceries come home from Hy-Vee or if it's a happy day, Trader Joe's, he and I go out. There's a lot about groceries in this section, frankly. He and I go out, unexpected. We go out and and we try to get the, the groceries from mom. Not because mom can't bring in the groceries, but because we're trying to show something, aren't we? At my church, Mission Road Bible Church in uh, Prairie Village, Kansas, pastored by Rick Holland, excellent expositor, 
when we first started visiting, we, we saw in the parking lot, there were all these young men. Never seen this at any other church. The young men, I don't know where they're going to end up in vocation. Um, the young men were leading the parking ministry. And they were doing it in the winter. And Kansas City winters are no joke. And I'm from Maine, so I know. So they're, they're out there in the snow and the bluster, Sunday after Sunday, shoveling the parking lot and parking cars, motioning you over so there's not chaos in the parking lot. What's being communicated there? Men step up. Men lead. And who, who is the ultimate example of this as we close tonight? The exemplar of courageous manhood is Jesus Christ. People try to gender neutralize Jesus as if he wasn't a man. Jesus was a man. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus worked a trade. Jesus was courageous. There is no more brave act in human history than the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped up to defend his bride and purchase a people for himself through salvation when no one else could and no one else would. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus frames his whole coming in terms of David. In Matthew's gospel, the first term applied to Jesus is son of David. And then right after it, son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. Who is David? David is the warrior king of the Old Testament. David is the one who steps up when no one else will step up. Jesus is the one who steps up to an even greater fashion. He not only saves his people in a situational sense, he saves his people eternally. He takes you and me who deserve eternal wrath in hell, poured out justly from God, all of us deserving this. And he takes it on himself. He drinks the Father's wrath like wine on the cross. Jesus did not die on the cross as a victim. He did not have good intentions and happy feelings, but it all got shipwrecked and he ended up on a cross. Jesus laid his own life down as a warrior to win you back from hell. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 so when we're talking about manhood, when we're talking about protecting, when we're talking about working unto God's glory, and when we're talking about leading, who are we actually talking about? We're not talking about us. We're not talking about any hero of Christian history. We are ultimately talking about the greater David. We are talking about Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, please help us to raise up men in the image of Christ by the power of the gospel for the glory of your name through the Spirit's laboring. Father, please help us to do this. Father, the wind is in our face at every turn in talking about biblical manhood and tomorrow morning talking about biblical womanhood. These things sound like ridiculous themes to so many around us, but we know that these are enchanted doctrines. There is glory in these things. There is glory in every minute of raising a godly son as you would work in his heart. There is glory in shaping a little girl to be a godly woman. 
Help us see the glory. Help us work hard until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.